Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Eric Olguin, Democratic nominee for Congress in Texas's 27th. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Eric, you're in an interesting situation. You're running in a special election to fill a seat vacated by Republican Blake Farenthold, who resigned in April after stories broke revealing he had sexually harassed and abused female employees while in office. In March, you made it to the Democratic runoff with 23% of the vote, while the top vote getter received 41%. But you ended up beating him in the runoff with over 60% of the vote, a really incredible turnaround. How did you pull this off? Yeah, so basically, we kind of doubled down our field effort. We're calling people, knocking on doors. We sent mail pieces to people that we knew were going to vote because runoffs typically have low voter turnout, which we expected. So we really drilled down onto the people that we knew were going to be reliable voters and just kept hitting them with the mail pieces and going to the doors and calling them. Um, and really did a targeted campaign on these people. So could you tell us more about the issues you're pushing? What are the top priorities for your campaign? Yeah, so one of my my kind of umbrella issue is our infrastructure. I This district is heavily underinvested and we have crumbling roads. Our pipelines are rusted, which gives us quite a number of water boils. Our electrical grid is out of date. And we last year, less than a year ago, we got ravaged by Hurricane Harvey. So it's really ensuring that our district is modernized and updated so we can withstand hurricane force winds because our region is hurricane prone. You know, they, they come every few years. It's ensuring that the district is attractive to new businesses and new markets that want to look at us and say, oh, hey, uh, the coastal bend of Texas is a great area to put our new headquarters that will bring 10,000 plus jobs living wage jobs, um, and people have been really invested in the community that the way that they should. There's there's quite a number of things, but, you know, educate our infrastructure, our healthcare, our education, our jobs, you know, really focusing on what is it that actually matters when people wake up every day in their life, uh, regardless of their political affiliation. And that's why I've been telling everyone uh, when I talk to Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians, I always tell them, I don't care who you voted for in 2016, what way can we work together to actually move our district forward and make the lives of everyone in the community better? And, you know, a lot of what I hear is paychecks, healthcare, school, uh, sort of things that we all agree on, uh, but for some reason we never could get to talking to those because we have a lot of these divisive issues sort of keeping us apart. So how do you handle those divisive issues on the campaign trail and what exactly are they? So a lot of the divisive issues, you know, I I hear about Planned Parenthood, I hear about gun reform, I hear about the wall, immigration. On my end, it's not backing down from what I believe is the right thing to do. And that is to say, and even in the state of Texas, we need to have common sense gun reform. And that, and, and also saying we don't need to build the wall because it is financially irresponsible and logistically uh, doesn't make sense. And it's, I tell these, I, when I talk to Republicans, I say, hey, we're going to have to agree to disagree because I'm not changing my mind and I know you're not changing your mind. So what is it that we could actually agree on um, and, and focus on that? And then we'll argue about, you know, these other issues later. Uh, but I'm, I'm not changing my mind. And that's, and, 
sometimes Republicans actually respect that because they see that you're standing for something. And what I hear all the time, sort of in complaints in regards to Democrats, is they don't have a message. They don't stand for anything really. They're sort of just this anti-Trump uh, group right now. And so, and, and people, and I'm hearing that left and right. And Republicans are actually coming across the aisle and say, hey, you seem like you're someone that we could actually work with, that you're not just being anti-Trump. They actually have a plan and actually want to invest in the district. And that's what they like. You know, I understand there's the hardcore 32% of the Trump supporters that Trump could, you know, shoot a kitten on Fifth Avenue and they would still vote for him. So, uh, you know, I, you know, they're not going to cross over to me. That's okay. Uh, But I'm wanting to work with people who want to work with me. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called C-Note is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings, all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average C-Note customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with C-Note, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is going to help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses, build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With C-Note, you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics. And know that C-Note does not charge any fees. There are no minimums. And sign up take less than five minutes. Check them out. I'd like to talk a bit more about some of those progressive priorities. How do you want to ensure that everyone has health insurance? Do you support Medicare for all? Yeah, I support Medicare for all and expanding Medicaid. You know, I think right now with healthcare. Implementing uh, Medicare for All is sort of a gradual process, and even having a single-payer system, which I support, is a gradual process. It's something that you can't just do right away. So the way I look at healthcare is sort of filling in the gaps that we have right now. Um, ACA, the Affordable Care Act, doesn't cover everyone specific, everyone right now. So it's you know it's kind of lowering the age of eligibility to buy into Medicare or possibly even expanding Medicaid. Um, we have CHIP right now that goes up to, I think, 18 or 19 years old for, for the youth. Um, and so once everyone has health care, uh, true universal 100% coverage of health care, then we can start transitioning to a single-payer system. Because if you talk to a lot of employ- uh, people that have health insurance through their employers, they like that. And it's, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to take that away from them um, and, upset them. So it's really trying to figure out, can we implement a public option right now, which would be expanding Medicare right now. And then, you know, a couple years, every two years, we start slowly transitioning um, into a single payer system. 
So you also mentioned immigration, which I think is considered a very divisive issue, but there is actually a good deal of unity in some respects. Additionally, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Now, of course, you support the DREAM Act, as the vast majority of Americans do, but there is this false sense that that would be a fix to the problem, when in truth, it would only actually help about 30% of the undocumented population. Now, a big proposal that I've been pushing and we've seen some other candidates push is ICE abolition. ICE is an agency founded in 2003 under the Department of Homeland Security with the mission to deport, quote, all removable aliens. So the purpose of ICE is to remove Americans based on their documentation status. What I'm asking you is if you support ICE abolition and how, as a member of Congress, you intend to support undocumented immigrants. Truthfully, I would need to do more research into ICE abolition. You know, there's if their studies show that they're doing more harm than good for the country, then that's something I'm totally open to. And obviously, right now, they are not doing a lot of good things for the country. But, you know, I before I commit to an answer on that, I would need to look more into, into that. But in terms of helping immigrants, we're, we're a compassionate country. And I still think we are. And I think we can still go in the right direction. And I support DACA. I support DAPA. And I think we need to reform our criminal justice system. When I worked for U.S. Congresswoman out of New York, uh, I did a lot of constituent affairs and I handled a lot of immigration cases. And it is very expensive. I mean, fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to to get your papers and everything to come into the country. And it doesn't happen over six months or a year or two years. I mean, we're looking at ten years or more. Um, if you're lucky. And so we need to heavily reform our immigration system so that way anybody who wants to come to the country to achieve the American dream should be able to um, without having so much bureaucracy and red tape. And we should make women and children priorities that are fleeing persecution or violence um, in their in their country, um, in their home country. You know, there's a lot of things we, we should do. We have a lot of mixed status families and we have the three and 10 year bar that sort of is, that keeps these mixed status families from fully becoming all naturalized because they would have to leave the country for a number of years in order to come back into the country. Um, and so that's preventing a lot of, a lot of undocumented immigrants from actually coming out of the shadows and applying for naturalization. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that needs to be done overall, we have a to reform the immigration system. I'm really glad to hear that you're open to ICE abolition. Let's absolutely follow up on that. Now, looking more into your district, in 2017, a federal court ruled that the 27th as well as the 35th in Texas were racially gerrymandered to deny voting power to Hispanic voters. What are your plans to combat gerrymandering and voter suppression? Well, the lines are drawn at the state level. So me as a federal elected, um, there's not much I could do within my legal authority to stop state gerrymandering. Of course, there's legislation that we could pass at the federal level to prevent gerrymandering, but it's really being an advocate and ensuring that our state electives are being held responsible for whenever they draw congressional maps. You know, it's unfortunate that this district is gerrymandered. Apparently, we're supposed to be hearing a ruling sometime late July, early August, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court already heard the case. Voters should be able to choose 
their elected officials, not the other way around. Um, and then on top of gerrymandering, we have voter suppression. In Texas, we have some of the most strictest voter ID laws. You know, you could, you could, you could show up to vote if you had your CHL gun license, um, but you can't show up to vote if you're student, if you have your student, your college student ID, which is ridiculous. And so, you know, there's a lot of backwards laws and it's really just reversing these laws and doing what we need to do at the federal level to ensure that, you know, states like Texas are being compliant with voter laws and, and not gerrymandering and all that stuff. It's just, it's become a mess. And what I sort of noticed, um, I'm sure this isn't the most original observation, as Democrats, we focused too much on the presidency and making sure we had a Democratic president. In the meantime, while we were all looking up at the sky and ensuring that we have a Democrat as a president, Republicans have been filling school boards, they've been filling state houses, they've been filling every single seat that they could. So that way, um, whenever the next election, presidential election rolled around, they were in front of us and they were behind us and they were surrounding us. And that's what we're seeing right now. So this reminds me of a key piece of your platform, engaging the youth, which is so important to us at Millennial Politics. How do you intend to do this both on the campaign and as a member of Congress? So what I've seen, what I've noticed throughout my campaign is a lot of youth connect with me because I'm young. I'm only 30 years old and I'm ready to take charge and really do something for the district. As I talk to a lot of these, a lot of young people, one, there's just voter apathy. They just don't care. Um, and two, it's talking to them. What I figured out what works is talking to them about the issues that they relate to. Because, you know, I hear a lot from a lot of baby boomers that say, oh, I don't know why the youth doesn't vote. You know, in my day, we were fighting for all these civil rights causes. And, and I, my response to them is, that's awesome. That's great. Those are issues that we learned about in the history books. So it's really talking to the young people about DACA, about Black Lives Matter, about LGBTQ rights, um, a lot of the social issues that are going on today, and then also student loans. A lot of you know we have a lot of people in college that are, that have a lot of heavy student loan debt. So it's really connecting the, it, what's going on right now with those people, and I kind of also tell them you know we have baby boomers that are making laws that are affecting the millennial generation or you know, the younger generations, they're going to be affected longer by these laws because, you know, baby boomers are on their way out. Um, and so we're, we're the ones that are being, that are going to have to deal with what's going on right now. And I think the age, the average age of Congress went up to 65 years old after the 2016 elections. And so, you know, Congress isn't representative of what the population looks like, and not even only in age, in women, in LGBTQ, uh, and other religious minorities, race, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been tough getting young people to vote, uh, but you got to have those hard conversations. And if we need to get into their Snapchat and their Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. And that's, what, that's what's been working on my campaign. It's really going hard on social media. So if elected, you would be the first openly LGBTQ Latino member of Congress. How do you hope to inspire members of your community who feel disenfranchised and are excluded from our modern political sphere? So throughout this campaign, 
a, quite a handful of times I'm at a campaign event or something and I'm finishing up my speech or kind of done doing my thing for the campaign and I see, you know, a high school, uh, young high school guy or young high school girl um, kind of off to the side looking at me kind of nervous. Um, and this, it's happened quite a few times where, you know, they tell me, oh my God, you're LGBTQ, so am I. Um, it's so weird seeing someone who's openly LGBTQ uh, run for run for office, let alone run for Congress, let alone be you know a viable candidate that actually has a chance at winning. And I came from their neighborhoods, I came from their schools, and so a lot of people, a lot of LGBTQ youth, or even in, in general, not just youth, they they're very inspired and they're very happy that I'm running because they see someone who is fearless. I kind of, I don't really care what people have to think about me and even my sexual orientation. And I just tell them, it's like, you know, don't let anybody tell you no. Don't let anybody tear you down. And if they do, they're just haters. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's a reflection on them. It has nothing to do with you. So don't take it personally. And that really resonates with people because you know, I, and speaking from experience, when I was younger um, and still in the closet and all that stuff, I would think everyone was just looking at me weird. And, and I just, in my head, I thought I was just being sort of awkward until I learned how to stop caring what people had to say about me or think about me. And then that opened me up to be able to really just do my thing and shine and really just go for it. Um, and it's been paying off and people, you know, I, I have so much respect here in the community, not only from the LGBTQ community, but the community at large because they see someone who's young, they see someone who's Latino, they see someone that's LGBTQ really going for it uh, and being taken serious. And so that's, you know, that's, I'm, I'm glad I am a role model in that way and I'll continue to encourage others um, that, are, that are scared to be able to go for something like this because they feel that they don't fit in or their sexual orientation has something to do with it. Uh, you know, I'm really trying to help them out and see how I could uh, make a difference in their lives. It's great to hear that. Now, under the Trump administration, we've seen a very visible assault on the LGBTQ community, but something most folks don't realize is that there have never been comprehensive federal protections for LGBTQ Americans, even under President Obama. And state-level attacks are only getting worse with Republican legislatures and governors really having free reign to legalize discrimination, and even courts sometimes sanctioning this discrimination. What do you hope to do as a member of Congress to protect and liberate the LGBTQ community? So the sort of overarching umbrella is getting the Equality Act passed. Um, that'll ensure the LGBTQ community is a federally protected class. And we saw with the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that the Supreme Court ruled, they didn't necessarily make a ruling that's okay to discriminate. Apparently, it was just based off of technicality or something within the state that the case was coming from. Uh, but it's really passing the Equality Act um, and... For some reason, that comes up every year and it just doesn't make it through. So it's really being an advocate, advocate for that and ensuring that businesses, hotels, you know, credit cards, housing, whatever the case may be, hospitals, 
uh, cannot discriminate against the LGBTQ community, just like they can't discriminate based off of race, uh, disability, veteran status, etc. It's just we just got to bring we just got to make sure that they're protected under that. And what I did whenever I was a when I was working for the New York City Controller, SB six was the bathroom bill here in Texas last year in 2017. What we did and what I sort of championed and steered through was to fight against SB six. What we did was we got our public the the public pension system of New York City plus investors from all over the country. We basically send a, well we sent a letter to Governor Abbott. Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Speaker uh, Strauss and said, if you follow through with this hateful bill, we're going to pull our investments out of Texas. You know, it wasn't, I, I don't know if that was the nail in the coffin for them not doing it, but it was an added voice letting you know that there's severe economic, it'll, it'll hurt the economy if you pass over these hateful bills. And it's really, you know, the LGBT community is a huge economic force. We contribute so much to this country that all these attacks is just it's, it's they're ridiculous and they're silly and they're unfortunate and it's a loss it's a losing cause for people that are against the LGBTQ community because we fought so hard and if there's one thing that people know is that our community bands together we're very strong and we're relentless if someone comes after us but the overarching law that passes the Equality Act so as I mentioned before the former representative in this seat was discovered to be a sexual harasser and abuser who used taxpayer money to settle a sexual harassment lawsuit. With more and more members of Congress being revealed to be sexual predators, what would you do as a member of Congress to combat the pervasive, uh, the pervasive culture of sexual predation in Washington? Right now, I think they're trying to pass legislation to where there basically won't be a congressional slush fund to pay out lawsuits because of a sexual harassment case. So that's one thing. The other thing is having training. I mean, it's so it's so weird and unfortunate to say they have to tell people that they need to keep their hands to themselves because that's something that you should have learned a long time ago. And so, you know, it's holding elected officials accountable. If they, if they touch someone inappropriately or say something inappropriately to someone, then they got to go. Like, it's having a no-nonsense rule that seems that there's got to be pressure to kick them out. I mean, it's, it seems like such a simple answer to be able to say, oh, well, just keep your hands to yourself. But the truth of the matter is there's people who just can't keep their hands to themselves. So now we have to enact laws and legislation and really let people know that if you do this, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to be held responsible not only financially, but you're going to have severe risk of losing your seat because of it. So your election is on June 30th, less than a month away. How does that work given that the November election is so soon after? Will there be another election for the seat then? I won the runoff. I'm the Democratic nominee for the general election in November. The special election that's happening on June 30th, early voting starts June 13th, is a separate race. It's for the same seat. It's just to fill the remainder of Darren Bell's term. Whether it's, it's a jungle primary, so the top two vote getters um, will go into a runoff if no one gets over 50% of the vote. There's nine candidates on the ballot, so it's highly unlikely that anybody's going to get over 50%. So there would be a runoff for the special election at the end of September, 
And then we would have the general election, the big midterm election, November 6th. We're looking at a total, for my campaign specifically, uh, we're looking at a total of five elections. We have a primary, primary runoff, special, special runoff, and then the general. So I chose a great year to run for office, but, you know, we're powering through each election and trying to prevent voter fatigue and make sure people go out and vote, um, just letting people know that's important. So if folks are interested in learning more about you or getting involved in your campaign, where can they find you online? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Eric Olegin, TX. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, Eric Olegin, last name spelled H-O-L-G-U-I-N. And my website is pretty easy. It's ericforus.com. You can type in number four. You can spell number four. I did that in case people get creative. Uh, but it's ericforus.com, and that has my direct email my direct number, direct contact, uh, and very accessible. I respond to all my messages um, on Facebook and I answer my emails. We're running a very grassroots campaign. My Republican opponent is supported by a major super PAC who gave him over $700,000 to run a smear campaign against his Republican opponent. So we're expecting the same thing to happen for the general. Uh, and he's a Tea Party, very far to the right a guy that wants the law, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, this campaign is for the people. It's for the working class. And we're, we're powering through and people are, people are excited. It's, um, I'm very excited and I'm happy that I'm still doing this and, and still able to continue to fight for the district. But again, my website's ericforus.com. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I, I, I listen to the podcast all the time, so I'm excited to, to be on it. Great. Well, for our listeners, if you want to hear more interviews with wonderful candidates like Eric, as well as candidates for governor and other statewide offices, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.